Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 343. The Respect Sextet provided the theme music for this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Please do go there and buy their music and uh, thank them for being a part of the Jazz Session family. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo. He's online at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. All About Jazz carries this show on their website, allaboutjazz.com, and they've got a cool widget that you can put on your website to show the latest episode of the Jazz Session. If you do that, please let me know, because I will mention you in my newsletter, which goes out each week. Speaking of which, if you'd like to get the newsletter, it's pretty simple. Just go to thejazzsession.com, and along the top, you'll see Mailing List. Just click on that and put in your email address, and it's as simple as can be, and I'll send you a newsletter each Thursday, usually. Sometimes it's Friday, but it's usually Thursday, that has links to that week's shows and some other links of interest and uh, concert notes for people who are on the show if they're performing or uh, on tour. Also, the show is member-supported. It's free to listen to, and it always will be, but if you would like to help keep it on the air, and that really does mean if you'd like to help keep me alive because the jazz session is how I eat and sleep indoors, uh, both of which are fairly tenuous these days. If you would like to help uh, make those situations less tenuous, please become a member. You can do it for as little as $10 a month, and there are uh, several membership levels, three, in fact, for the monthly method and three for the yearly method. You may remember, if you are a longtime listener to this show, that the guitarist Nico Sofiato was on the show maybe last year. And he and I have uh, become friends since then, and I went to see him uh, at a club in Brooklyn not too long ago, and sitting in with him was Noah Kaplan, the saxophone player, who actually I had never heard play before, and uh, I really enjoyed listening to him. And then I heard uh, the band Doll Shot that he has um, with his wife, uh, Rosalie Kaplan, and I was impressed with that too. And then his new album came out, which is called Descendants, and I really enjoyed it. So it seemed like it was time to have Noah on the show to talk about his music. We'll hear a track from Descendants and then my interview with saxophonist Noah Kaplan.
My guest is the saxophonist Noah Kaplan. The Noah Kaplan Quartet's new album is called Descendants, and it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I don't know. I guess it's an obvious place to start, but I never shy away from the obvious. The The title seems to imply a lineage, and I think to some degree, either implicit or explicit, there is a lineage being spoken about here in the music on the album and the people that you've chosen to play it with you. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that and, and kind of where you see the roots of your own musical tree coming yeah, from. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, The Descendants is definitely... Um, I mean, actually, originally, Descendants was kind of just about sort of descent in general, more of a Darwinian idea. And then it ended up being, like, obviously, you know, linked to where the music was coming from. And, um, yeah, I studied with, with Joe Maneri for six and a half years. And the music definitely is an outgrowth of my studies with Joe in a number of ways. And um, I think, actually, Jocmo Morega, who's the bass player on it, also worked with Joe a bit and we were in the class together and stuff so for both of us there's that and Joe Morris worked with Joe extensively and um, Jason is we had played with Jason a number of times from NEC and afterwards and yeah can you give people who might not know just a little sketch of who uh, Joe was Joe Maneri oh yeah Joe Maneri was an incredible microtonal saxophone player theorist and composer who taught a uh, microtonal theory and composition class at NEC and recorded extensively. Um, was an incredible improviser and you know played all sorts of music, classical music and ethnic music and jazz. Were you already interested in microtonal music before you went to New England Conservatory? Or is no, that actually, not, not at all. No. That was, uh, I had no <laughs> idea, never even heard of it. So, very interesting. I actually went to NEC to study with Jerry Berganzi. And while I was there, a, um, a pianist who was studying with Joe... Um, asked me if I would come to his lesson and sit in and meet Joe, and I did, and um, it was incredible. I mean, it was nothing like I'd ever experienced before. I mean, Joe was, like, sitting there in a little Santa hat and yelling about a bunch of stuff, and he was hilarious and um, told me I needed to stop playing bebop if I ever wanted to develop my own sound. And um, so, yeah, I became, you know, I couldn't stop thinking about the interaction with Joe and called Joe up and said, asked him if I could study with him, and he told me at the time that he wasn't taking any more students, which was a real bummer for me. And so I asked him again, and he said no, and he said that people asked him all the time, and there was no way he was going to do it. And so um, I kind of was persistent and kind of... I'd been very interested in classical theory in high school and when I got to NEC, and so I kind of felt like Joe was perfect because of his mastery of classical theory as well as jazz, and kept on him, and he told me that he had to talk to God about it and to call him back in a week, finally. And so I waited a week and finally called him back, and he told me that, you know, I was in luck, and he was actually going to take me, and I'd be his last student. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, I guess if God intercedes on your behalf, (laughs) (laughs) your career is moving in the right direction. So do you remember what it was it kind of in the moment of of meeting Joe and hearing him that first? I mean, he, he effectively told you, you need to stop all of the things you had planned on doing with the next several years of your life and do these other things, which mm-hmm. you don't really even know exactly what they are. What, what made that attractive? What made you think he was right? You know, I don't know. I, I guess there was something in me that was feeling like I needed a new direction. Um, so it tended to be, you know, you get to a certain point and it's like everyone's doing kind of a similar thing with the jazz language. So I was ready to to develop my own voice, I think, in a different way. And also, Joe just has this incredible charisma and magnetism that was, you know, when he tells you something, it's either it means a whole lot to you or, you you know, it doesn't mean anything. And I think that people go one way or the other that know Joe. 
was uh, had you had any experience um, listening to what we might consider more adventurous or freer music before you got to NEC? Yeah, actually, um, Joe McPhee's record Tenor and Fallen Angels. I had gotten a hold of that when I was in high school and was obsessed with it. So, I mean, that was that was kind of the extent of the free jazz. I mean, that and Lake Coltrane listened to a lot. And did you do any playing in that style before you really started studying blue <laughs> yeah. Actually, I used to I used to stay back and uh, and practice. You know, before I knew how to play chord changes or anything, I'd be you know playing free all the time. And the my high school teacher actually told me that. Even though I had no idea how to play over a chord, I already sounded like a professional free jazz musician. Just sort of a backhanded compliment. <laughs> not sure if he was insulting you or complimenting you. I guess, first of all, I'd be curious uh, whether when at NEC you decided to go in Joe Maneri's direction, whether that was a difficult move kind of in the institutional structure, and then what it was like for you when you started to to explore that world. Yeah, it was during my freshman year. It was kind of towards the last third of my freshman year. And the difficult part was leaving Jerry because I had kind of gone there with the intent of studying with Jerry and was the only person at the time who was studying full-time with Jerry, so I felt kind of strange about that. Um... And I ended up working with Jerry after that in other settings, so it was fine. And then logistically it became difficult because the jazz department, for some ridiculous reason, didn't have... Joe was always on very weird terms with people at NEC, so they were trying to convince me not to study with Joe or to study with Joe half-time only. And so that was another battle that ended up being, you know, completely for the better, I think. And Joe was totally supportive the whole time in that. And I'm interested when... I mean, this is in many ways like learning a new language in the same way that learning jazz and the improvisational language in the first place was. Um, can you talk a little bit about the process of that, about kind of delving into microtonal music and getting your ear, I guess, and trained more than anything else, maybe? Yeah, it started off from, I mean, kind of Joe's philosophy of teaching was very uh, multifaceted, I would say. And so it started with just me listening to his music and kind of trying to figure out what the heck was going on, which I'm not sure I... You know, it took a long time to get a grasp on that. And um, then we would play all the time. At, you know, the first couple of years, 
he'd bring a saxophone all the time and we'd improvise together and practice improvising on various forms and um, you know ABA, ABC, all these different things and um, then you know I took the class the first year and then ended up TAing in the class for the next three years so I had a lot of practice in microtonal ear training from doing that and working with Joe privately and the biggest thing I think was actually I don't remember how far in maybe a year and a half or two years in I really found out like the extent of Joe's knowledge of classical theory and so um, I begged him to like if you teach me harmony and counterpoint the way that he had learned it and you know he was a little bit reluctant at first just because it was so took years kind of a multi-year course and um, he told me I'd have to start back from the beginning even though I thought I knew all this stuff about classical theory which I later learned I didn't actually Um, so we did you know we started from the beginning of the Schoenberg Harmony book and the beginning of Species Counterpoint and moved all the way you know took another four years and I finished fugues and motets and went through the Schoenberg Harmony Count- Harmony book and then again in Counterpoint. So there was a tremendous amount of classical theory studies that ended up informing, I think, the improvisation language probably more than anything else. And Joe felt that way too. I mean, that was kind of his... He felt that that's what led him to it, I think. Can you say more about that? How does, it, how does one inform the other? Well, I think the, the formal study of Counterpoint really affects the way that you interact with other musicians and the and counterpoint being the way voices interact exactly, with one another. Yeah, the, vo- the way that the voices interact. And I think that, you know, just the way that Joe taught these things was like to minutely break them down into composing phrases. And I think that just doing that, you know, composing enough phrases, you start really feeling what a good phrase feels like. And that carries over as well into improvisation in a way that just studying chord changes and scales doesn't necessarily do. Sure. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. If, if we, uh, if we look at the music, for example, on Descendants, are there things that you can, uh, this is always a little challenging, I think, but are there things that you can directly point to that uh, underscore what you're talking about with classical theory and how it might relate to the music that you're making now? Um, yeah, I think the last track, actually, Untitled track, has, um, quite, just in terms of development, I think that one's kind of interesting in that way. And you know, I think the first track is, I mean, I think there's kind of a general melodic feeling throughout. And I mm-hmm. think that, you know, Joe Morris is an expert at this as well, at contrapuntal improvising. So I, and so is Jogma. I mean, I feel like that's kind of the the modus operandi of the band is to be constantly, everyone's kind of constantly playing individually and creating something together, the way the voices interact in Counterpoint. Sounds easy when you say it. And if, you know, we need to think about it for one more second, it sounds like magic. Can you talk about how you, how do you create a situation where people have that kind of individual freedom, but somehow somehow it comes out as your musical vision to whatever degree that's important to you. Um, I think it's a language thing more than anything else. I mean, it works with some people and it doesn't work with other people. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, the musicians, every musician, all the musicians on this record are incredibly musical and sympathetic. And, you know, there's a certain degree of sort of following each. I play with Giacomo in a number of settings and sometimes I'm the leader and sometimes he's the leader and it kind of depends who's following who in that setting. So, you know, in this setting, I'm more for foregrounded, so I think people are kind of coalescing around that a lot of the time. And but that's not always the case. And I think that the music—I mean, the music that I play with Jacmo—that's more his music—is a very different sounding kind of music, even though, you know, both of us are improvising. Sure.
Hey, can you talk about uh, actually approaching the, the material for this record and how much happened just in the in the moment in the studio? How much did you go in with kind of a vision of what it might end up sounding like? Yeah, I mean, to an extent, Jocko and I have been playing together uh, all the time. I mean, we rehearsed weekly and sort of, you know, we had our a language and we had been playing with Joe a little bit. We had done a gig at the Stone the year before. Um, in terms of pre-planning specifically for the record, there was, I mean, it's not, it's just improvised in the sure. studio. And I think that, I mean, so far in the, the recordings I've done, the real sort of compositional element besides the, besides what happens spontaneously comes afterwards when we're assembling the record and figuring out what to use and what not to use and how to assemble it and where to make a cut if there needs to be one. Um, Can you say more about that, about the assembly process? That's That sounds interesting. Yeah, I mean, generally when we go into the studio, we get, you know, anywhere from two to four hours of music that has to be cut down to anywhere from a 35 to 60 minute rec- recording. So um, there's definitely a lot of figuring out, you know, even if there's if there's two great pieces that sound too much alike, obviously both of them aren't going to work on the recording, just in an overall compositional sense. So there's a lot of picking and choosing, and then sometimes there's a great seven minutes of a 14-minute piece, and there's a way to, you know, there's a seam that's pretty obvious, and sometimes we'll do that. We'll cut cut off half of it and use the second half of it, mm. you know, for example. Yeah, it's interesting when you're not playing music where there's a defined, you know, head, solo, head format it seems like it almost becomes more like building blocks that you can use to create the album you want rather than a series of defined, you know, like here's, here's the paintings in my exhibit. It seems more like here's the bricks that I have to build this structure with or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, structure is a huge part of it. And I think that, you know, there's all sorts of things. There's, you know, the pacing of a track, there's the sort of, um, you know, the rhythmic elements of a track, the volume of a track, uh, you know, there's a number of different elements that make certain things fit in certain places better than others. The length, for one, and I think that um, that's definitely true. Did you do all this in one day in yeah. the studio? And so, uh, after one piece had finished, did you have in your mind, uh, you know, some little map of what the album might be like, and you knew, okay, well, that was kind of like this, and so I need X. And did that affect the way you improvised, or was it just go from zero every time and? I think, I mean, my personal, I I can't speak for the other guys in the band, but my my personal feeling is always, you know, to change things up so that we don't have the same piece being recorded a number of times. And it's always to kind of take things in drastic, drastically different directions. So that when I listen back to the the overall session, you know, the pieces are pretty, pretty varied one to another. Mm. And um, that's mostly just so that we don't have a lot of repetition. And also so that we're kind of always reaching for something new. Because, you know, the worst thing would be to end up with, a whole bunch of improvisations that sound the same. So. And can you talk about how you might take something in a drastically different direction? Yeah, I mean, just reaching for different, you know, trying not to repeat the same lines, trying not to repeat the same feel, um, trying to vary the interaction so that if, you know, Joe Morris and I have a duo in one piece, the next piece, maybe Joe and Giacomo have a duo or Jason has a solo or, you know, all that. I mean, we're, we're very, spanned. I mean, we're very conscious sort of of instrumentation and what's happening at a given time and who's interacting with whom. And is that stuff that you'll talk about explicitly before you begin playing? No, not not in this group. In other groups, I mean, we've done stuff with charts and graphs and sure. all that stuff. But no, not not here. So somehow you have to arrive at at those textural and structural differences without anyone actually saying, in this song, make sure Jason gets a solo or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of been the... the 
kind of for me, I mean, the kind of the magical thing about this group of people is that we're able to do that. And you know, when we were arranging this record, I mean, one of the interesting things about this particular recording is that each track um, starts with a different person. So the first track starts with all of us. The second track starts with uh, solo by Jockmo. Third track starts with me. Fourth track starts with Joe. Fifth track starts with Jason. And I forget who the last track starts with. I think all of us. So, I mean, that was definitely part of the, you know, some part of the arrangement. At the yeah. End. Yeah, it's fascinating. Hey, can you talk about what, as a as a player and as an improviser, what what satisfies you? Uh, you know, it's it's easy, I think, for, uh, you know, kind of the, the general audience to whom this show is sent to imagine skillfully navigating chord changes, for example. Like, you know, it's going by fast and you're able to get through it and you can understand why that would be satisfying because there's a puzzle and you figured out how to put the pieces in. But in music like this, where it's it's happening in the moment with a with a shared language, but not necessarily a defined defined set of terms, how do you where do you find the satisfaction in the moment? Where, what is it that that kind of I don't know hits you in the core or whatever? It makes it feel like okay, this is a good take versus another, or I feel like I'm playing up to my potential now versus not. There's a few things. I mean, one of them probably the biggest is energy. Just kind of how the energy feels. And that's something that's sort of an intangible that mm. kind of works or it doesn't. And um, as well as, you know, phrases and melodies and kind of where the, the, the compositional direction of, of a track. I mean, there's times when, you know, someone takes a great solo in a, in a particular take, but the overall take could be meandering. You know, I mean, that's... And so it's like you want sort of a formal tautness to it. And things like, you know, endings are really important and... Yeah, I mean, I think it's just kind of keeping keeping in mind structure while we're doing it. Important. I think, um, I mean, to me, I think the word free is way overused and it's used improperly because, you know, obviously you guys have a shared language and you're not operating from a vacuum. You've heard and played whatever music you've heard and played. But uh, it's interesting to me that one of the things that informs this music is a very formal, detailed study of classical theory because I think at least to my ear, it would be easy to listen to this and say, well, I don't actually hear how that plays in because there's not, because this is all being created in the moment. It's not a complex through composed piece. So maybe you, can you say a little more about how you feel that it affects your playing or the way that you interact with the other members of the band having studied what you've studied? Yeah, I think definitely part of it's sort of an intuitive thing. Mm. Um, and that's just how I interact in a moment with, with another musician, you know, with a line that someone else is playing, for example. And I think another part of it is, I mean, honestly, the first time that I heard Joe's music, I was confused, to say the least, as to what was going on. And after I started, you know, listening regularly and studying Schoenberg and Berg and Webern and all these, you know, the abstract 20th century composers, all of a sudden his music started making a lot more sense to me. And those guys were all hugely, hugely trained. You know, I mean, Schoenberg, Joe's, the way that Joe studied classical theory was directly from Arnold Schoenberg. I mean, he taught Berg, and Berg taught Joseph Schmidt, who then taught Joe. So, I mean, it's very direct kind of lineage to the way that that music was made. And so for a listener, for just a general listener, who's not going to come to this music with all of that background necessarily, uh, I mean, like for me, for example, what do you hope someone like me will bring to listening to this record what do you what do i need if anything and what do you hope i'll bring to it when i listen to it i think that you need patience when you're listening to it and i think that it's something that if it doesn't make sense at first i think that i mean for me always with 
with more abstract music, it always takes a lot of time. I mean, it's something that because there's so much structure there, it's like the more you listen to it, the deeper it gets. And I hope that, you know, I hope this music has that possibility. Um, but I definitely think that, that patience is important. And I think that, you know, listening, trying to kind of follow along what's happening and listening, it's not the kind of music that you can put on while you're hanging out. I think it's not background music. It's the kind of music that you have to pay attention to. And I mean, in my experience with music like this, it's, you know, it's very fascinating once you start listening carefully to the interactions and stuff. And keeping in mind who's interacting with whom at a given time and sort of, you know, just the structural elements of what's happening, if you can keep track of them, I think is interesting. And the energy is obviously kind of a, I think that's a, a internal thing that you feel when you listen to it. Do you find as you go on in your career and as you further the amount that you know about music that you go back to albums you listened to when you kind of first started out and hear them in a whole new light now? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I've been listening to a lot of Duke Ellington and Coltrane lately. Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely think that, that, that that's true. And some things um, I've gone back to and like less and other things mm. I've gone back to and liked more. I mean, I've been very, very interested in early jazz lately. What, do you know why? Do you know what's caught your ear about it? I think the contrapuntal element of it. I mean, I think the fact that that music has people playing together all the time and there's very interesting things that occur in that way. Um, yeah, I've been listening to a lot of Art Tatum recently. It's been blowing my mind, and I never understood it when I was younger. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, can you? Uh, I'm interested. What might make you like something less than you liked it before? Um, I think there was a lot of stuff that I was kind of enamored with because of the technical prowess of it mm. as a saxophone player. And I listen back to it, and it's, you know, it's still very, you know, it's amazing technique, but it's just sort of a lesser priority to me now. Just, you know, just technique. I feel like there's got to be something else besides that. And music that sounds too sort of cliche or mainstream in a way is kind of less interesting to me. I mean, I, I, that's just me, though. I tend to prefer things that are a little bit off the center mm. and that have an originality to them. You're involved, in addition to your own quartet, in a number of 
other projects, some of which you lead or co-lead. Uh, can you talk about some of the other things that you're involved in these days? Yeah. Uh, my wife, Rosalie, and I have a band called Dollshot, and we've been we play 20th century art songs as well as originals and improvise on them and rearrange them. And um, it's with a fantastic pianist named Wes Matthews and Giacomo as well on electric bass. Yeah, it's a really cool band, and I encourage people to, to seek out Dollshot. And can you talk about where the idea for that came from? Yeah, it came from actually at my senior recital at NEC. I had done improvisations on Schoenberg songs with Wes, and we play the song straight, Book of the Hanging Gardens. We play the song straight and then improvise on it. And that was an incredible experience for me. And Rosalie is hugely into art songs and um, is very passionate about them. And so it seemed kind of like the ideal combination. We'd kind of combine her singing and her arrangement ideas with improvisation. And how much of the structure of the uh, – you said there were some originals, but how much of the structure of the the covers, for lack of a better word, that you, you played do you use during the improvisatory – sections do you keep the forms of those pieces or do you no most of it's pretty straight up well some of them i mean it's it's pretty straight up improvisation but based again i mean that's something wes is awesome at is is sort of taking motives and stuff from the song and we try to keep the feel of the the piece as much as possible but i had experimented with with keeping the form straight in the schoenberg songs and it was a little bit awkward sounding it's more better to free it up a little bit as long as we keep the language happening yeah are there other projects that you're involved in all the people you're playing with these days yeah i have a trio sort of with Giacomo morega well i say sort of because we're <laughs> constantly switching uh switching the third person so we did a record a few years ago with david tronzo on guitar and another one coming out with marco capelli and we're working all the time um and then i have been composing for writer hampton fancher and um he was part of our show at galapagos last year and we're starting kind of a chamber opera together Oh, wow. should be interesting. Wow. That's fantastic. <laughs> and can you talk more about that, about what the writing is like, what you're, how you got involved with that? Yeah. Hampton's actually, I've known him since I was a kid, and he uh, was sending him music all the time when I was at NDC, and we were corresponding regularly. And I'm crazy about his writing, and he was very interested in the microtonal music and stuff, so I've been trying to figure out how to blend the two together. And we actually did a recording that's coming out um, next, probably in the fall, on our record label on Underwolf, and that's Hampton performing a text that he wrote with um, Giacomo, Marco, and myself playing music that I composed behind him. Oh, fantastic. And I should have asked you this first, but you t- tell people who Hampton Fancher is. Oh, Hampton Fancher is a uh, screenwriter, director, and author, and he wrote Blade Runner and directed The Minus Man and is currently finishing up a book that will be published next fall. Fiction. And how did you, did he, was he your neighbor or something, coincidental like that? Or how did no, he's actually my kid? mom's boyfriend. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> All right, perfect. Uh, are there other projects you want to mention? Yeah, we have a second record coming out. I'm not sure exactly when yet, but it's done. With the quartet, you mean? Yeah, with the quartet. And um, that should be coming out somewhere down the road, and that'll be on Hat Hat as well. So are you, uh, you know, there seem to be two schools of thought when it comes to releasing music. There's the people, you know, who are on, like, in fact, Joe Morris is a good example of this, who's on, you know, 20 records a year about 15 of which are his, and then he plays on five others. And then there's people who put one record out every five years, and it seems like in the jazz world, there's kind of those two ways of operating. Are you leaning more toward the former, the just kind of get things on record in that moment and go on? It depends. You know, I feel like it's important to have just my time in New York because I've been involved in uh, a lot of varied projects. Mm. So 
like the difference we recorded the first quartet record in 2008 and have played together since but didn't record the second one until 2011 which actually created a completely different sounding kind of music i mean the, the music has evolved significantly since then and so that's been really interesting in terms of the more composed music since it's so different i mean i feel like it's i guess i'm what i'm trying to say is i'm sort of for both like sure. i don't want to it's it'd be i'd prefer to put out um you know, different kinds of music regularly that I'm involved with. Yeah. Can you talk more about the nature of the writing that you're doing uh, with Hampton and how it maybe differs or is similar to the writing you're doing for your other project or the, yeah, the, the approach? The writing with Hampton has been, I mean, the, the track that we did, it's called Rat Lunch, the piece that we did. And I was, the goal in that was sort of to figure out a compositional m- mode and direction, kind of to direct some improvisational aspects behind him because he didn't read rhythmic notation, so I wanted him to be able to speak freely while we played music that fit in certain places behind him. So that okay. was a challenge, trying to figure out how to do that. Um, how did you overcome that challenge? By lining up sections. and I, Actually, the piece is based on a 12-tone row that we improvise with and um, in different ways. Well, sometimes improvise with, sometimes it's not improvised, but it's, it's, demar- you know, it's demarcated based on where he's at in the text. So there's sections that were then edited together in the studio afterwards okay and the opera is going to be much more straight up kind of composition with with uh singers okay so in the in the rat lunch piece where there were sections demarcated by text when you were did you did he just record himself saying the text and then you guys recorded the music and you put them together or no we tried that didn't work so oh really okay didn't sound right so what we ended up doing was doing um sort of i had broken up his text into what i consider different sections of it and i had composed music for each one of those sections and we recorded them and then put them together at the end into one okay. piece, which sounded perfectly natural sure When you're composing music for text, do you find yourself guided by the programmatic elements of the text? Uh, you know, obviously, you're not starting in a vacuum in the same way you might be when you're just sitting down with a piece of staff paper or whatever. There's something there. There is some some idea, some feeling or emotion represented there. Does that guide how you how you write? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I try to. You know, it's the music that I love does that, and so 
that's uh, I mean that's a particular challenge is trying to figure out how to highlight certain things in the text and whether the music should um, fit with those things or whether it should go against those things in the text, mm. which is not present in instrumental music. So yeah, that's an interesting challenge. Is it sometimes better for the music to not directly conform to the emotion conveyed by the text? I think so. I mean, I think that that can be an interesting effect, definitely, is to have the text say one thing. And I mean, it happens in Wagner all the time, for example, where you have the libretto saying one thing or someone's expressing an emotion and the music is directly going against that emotion mm. and commenting on that emotion so that you get a whole other perspective on what the characters are saying and sort of some insight into who the characters are sure. based on the music. Happens in Stevie Wonder all the time, too. Where, <laughs> you know, super happy tunes, talking about breakups and death and everything else. Yeah. Yeah, so it's great. You're from the West Coast originally, right? Yeah. And uh, I mean, you've you've done what a lot of people have done, which is to come to New York, and you've chosen to kind of make your mark in a bunch of fairly difficult, obscure niches of an already very niche music. And I wonder what effect that's had on you uh, career-wise. Has it been a good move, an indifferent move? Um, when you say, what do you mean by good move? I don't know. I guess we can define, maybe we have to define our terms first. That's yeah. interesting. But I mean, it's disheartening sometimes sort of to, to play for not a lot of people. Um, but it's really exciting that it's an, un, for, I mean, for me, the way I look at it, microtones are largely sort of uncharted territory. And I think that that's very exciting to be working in something that's very open-ended like that. Um, and yeah, I mean, I just, I'm trying to do things that I really enjoy doing and that I feel like express who I am. Mm. And so that's been extremely rewarding. I've always, uh, this has come up on this show a few times. Uh, we've had other other people who's kind of specialize in microtonal music and just people whose music, to me, speaks to a real affinity with modern classical music. And it's come up on, and I think Dollshot is maybe the one of the most explicit hybrids of those kinds of approaches. Uh, and I'm always interested that there is not very much actual programming done in New York that I've seen at least that pairs people who do adventurous improvisatory music with people writing modern classical music and the and showing the ways in which those two fields kind of intertwine. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that subject or any experience with it. Yeah, I mean, I found the same thing. I actually thought that there would be a lot more than there was. So it's been interesting <laughs> trying to fit into certain categories that, you know, trying to do that. Um, What's and it I been think, like for Dollshop, for example, as a, as a specific example, a, a band that seems like it can straddle those two worlds? I wonder if you've had success in, in bridging that, that gap. In any... Yeah, I mean, we've had success. I mean, there are people who definitely really like the band, um, but it's still hard because we're not exactly classical music and we're not exactly jazz. And we're not, you know, we have some sort of pop elements in the band that we're definitely not pop. So it's right. it's been tricky. <laughs> to, you know, people don't know exactly what to say about the band, I think. And that's, you know, can be a good thing and can also be a liability as well. Yeah. Did New York meet your expectations? What expectations did you have for coming here? And I wonder how how it turned out or how it's um, turned out so far. Yeah, I mean, it's been more and more it's it's meeting my expectations. I think my expectations at first needed a serious adjustment. <laughs> but that was sort of the story I get from everyone. <laughs> but How so? Can you say more about that? Yeah, I mean, coming here and realizing how hard it is. I think that when when you're not living in New York, it seems like, everything would be easy in New York and that people are working all the time and making money, playing music and all that stuff. So that's, you know, a reality that I think is true for some people and not true for a lot of other people. Yeah. So that's taken an adjustment, but I think there's like, I always imagine a tremendous amount of opportunity in New York that doesn't exist in other places, which is, um, you know, really excellent and totally worth worthwhile, worth living here for. Yeah. I always wonder why anyone would actually still think that there is 
you know, that our jazz clubs are paved with gold because it, it hasn't been the case maybe ever, or at least certainly not in decades that it's been easy to make a living here as a jazz musician. And then now there are jazz schools all over the country. And it seems to me like they should all say like abandon hope, all you who enter here above the door or something. Cause it's, it is incredibly difficult to make a living at this music. And yet that doesn't really seem to get addressed all that much in the jazz schools that, you know, when you get out of here, you're going to owe us a lot of money and you're there's not going to be any way for you to make any except by a miracle. <laughs> Yeah, I think that would be uh, pretty detrimental to the, <laughs> yeah. the program. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. But yeah, no, definitely. I think that that's, you know, I think, and the more that I learn about jazz history, the more sort of heartening it is about what's going on now. I mean, the fact that I learned, I don't know when, it's, Lester Young was sleeping on Billie Holiday's floor. Joe Morris was telling me about Thelonious Monk playing for no one for a long time. I forget where, but you know, it's like there's a, people have been struggling all the time. The greatest people have been struggling, so it's very humbling to yeah. think about them struggling. Is it important to you, given uh, the styles of music you tend to find yourself in, is it important to you to have a grounding in the jazz tradition? I know you've already said it was important to you to have a classical theoretical grounding. Do you feel the same way about what we would consider the tradition, I guess? Yeah, jazz? I mean, I, I, I absolutely love jazz and very passionate about jazz and about jazz history. And growing up, I oscillated all the time between periods of being obsessed with classical music and then going back and being obsessed with jazz. So it's, I think that my sort of musical personality and musical influences are every bit as much tied to jazz history as they are to classical music. Do you, I know you can't speak for everyone, but do you think in a general way that that's important, that no matter what kind of improvisatory music you're going to play, that a grounding in the tradition is important? I know people are definitely of different minds on that subject. In the jazz tradition? or in Yeah, I get, well, I'm, I'm not even sure if it would extend just to the jazz tradition. Yeah, I mean, I think that, it, you know, any artist, there are definitely exceptions, but I think that... Um, it's very important for artists to have a grounding in what's come before them just because it informs their own creativity in so many ways and sort of opens a lot of doors, I think, that not knowing about what other people have done before you, you know, it limits you a lot, I think. And I think that people that are hugely creative people have often later in life started studying history and in order to free themselves from their own personalities, you know? Yeah. So. Are there ways that you free yourself from whatever idiomatic 
boxes you may get into from time to time, ways that you push yourself or expand your horizons? Yeah, I'm trying. I mean, one thing I've started doing in the last couple of years is practicing technique all the time, um, and especially sort of my microtonal technique to try to free myself from the liability of improvising anytime in jazz, which is to, to be playing your licks all the time. Mm. And I'm constantly trying to move away from that and, you know, get new things under my fingers and new ideas in my ears and writing, you know, writing phrases and writing, composing helps tremendously for that to kind of work out musical ideas. Um, is that something you weren't doing as much before, the kind of technical study on the whole? Well, I think I was doing technical study, but also a lot of sort of, there was the, the theoretical study, but then also the just sort of like absorbing a microtonal language mm. and, you know, working on improvising forms and, you know, sort of a technical improvisational side of things and not so much saxophone for a little while. Sure. Do you write just on staff paper? Do you write at the piano on your saxophone? How do you um, approach composition? Do staff paper and the piano most of the time. And unfortunately, the piano doesn't play microtones. So at least there's... Yeah, without software of some <laughs> yeah. sort. <right? laughs> so um, I do, you know, some singing and with the saxophone and I'm trying to figure out, you know, the best way to do that. It's, it's very difficult to hear complicated microtonal harmonies. So that's been yeah. something I'm working on. Do you listen to other, uh, musics from other traditions, other uh, countries where microtonal music is more common? Do you get ideas from those sources? Um, I wouldn't say, I mean, I listen to, you know, I have some various ethnic CDs that I enjoy, sure. but I don't, it's not something that I look look to for inspiration right now though okay. i'm totally open to it i just haven't had the experience yet. yeah yeah fair enough so as people are listening to this it is uh the first week in february 2012 and you have a show coming up tomorrow if folks are listening to this in real time please talk about that yeah that's going to be uh with the quartet with joe and Giacomo and jason and um also with fantastic trumpet player and his trio they'll be opening at eight and who's that Joe Moffat, mm. who has a CD coming out that I'm on on Not Two Records in February, and he'll be with two guitarists. And then we have the quartet has a show in April, April 27th at Firehouse 12 in New Haven, which should be also a lot of fun. That's great. And say just say again the location and time for the one on the third to make sure that we get it on the. Table. Oh, it's at Douglas Street, uh, February 3rd at eight o'clock. My guest is Noah Kaplan, the saxophonist. He and his quartet have an album called Descendants and another album on the way, and he's on other records and going to be on more, I think, many more as the years go on. It's been a pleasure to, to meet you and to get a chance to talk to you. I thank you for doing it, and I hope you come back. Oh, thank you very much. It's, it's been great.
That's music from Noah Kaplan and his new CD, Descendants. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, presented by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton, the show's three official sponsors. By the way, how do you become an official sponsor? It's quite simple. You just become a member at the highest membership level, either monthly or yearly. So that means for $50 a month or a one-time payment of $500 for a year, you can be mentioned on every single show, twice a week for 52 weeks a year. So if you do the math, that is a pretty good deal for that uh, $500 that you're going to spend or that $50 a month that you're going to spend. Uh, if you want to get your name out there, that's a great way to do it. Uh, but more importantly, if you just want to support the thing that I do. If you want to support long-form interviews with jazz musicians, there aren't many people doing these. And if you'd like to have this archive available and these shows uh, made far into the future, then please do become a member. Meanwhile, keep the music alive that I talk about each time by going out and supporting live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.